innovation and the federal government are these words that we often hear together? Not often, but today on CXO Talk, we're going to be talking a lot about the combination of federal government, Department of Health and Human Services, and interesting things happening. This is episode number 106 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and as always, I'm here with the glorious, the fabulous Vala Offshore. Vala, how are you? Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. This is the favorite time of the week for me because I get to learn from best and brightest, and today is no exception. I just don't understand why you don't ever want to buy an Apple Watch, but we can talk about that later. We'll talk about the Apple Watch, but let's first talk with our guest, who is Brian Civic, who is the Chief Technology Officer for the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States federal government. Brian, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Brian, can you tell us briefly about your professional background and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, so it's uh, it's sort of an interesting story. I uh, I'm really a software entrepreneur by heart. Uh, I started a company in '97 in San Francisco. Uh, grew that for a while. Moved over to London in 2005 to open up the European and Asian office for the company. And uh, in 2009 was actually recruited by the city of Washington D.C. to be the CIO for the city. Uh, kind of came out of nowhere, but for a few different reasons, it was um, it was the right time to to make a move. Uh, and I'd always been interested in public service. I'd always been um, uh, sort of uh, I always wanted to see what it was like, and it was just an interesting role to step into. So uh, I uh, moved back. We, the whole family moved back to the states. Uh, we moved to D.C. Took that job, uh, and actually, it turned out to be. Uh, way more fun than I ever could have imagined. Uh, city level stuff just in general is incredibly fun uh, because it's so tangible and so fast moving. Uh, you're doing things every day that affect people on literally a, a minute to minute basis. And uh, I was lucky that I happened to be working for a mayor who really understood that if you hire good people and then just let them do their jobs and don't hold them back, they can accomplish incredible things. And so we were working with a team that was incredible. We got amazing stuff done. Um, a lot of those people uh, that I worked with are still some of my best friends, and it, it was great. Unfortunately, uh, Mayor Fenty lost his reelection campaign, and uh, basically we were all out of a job at that point. The uh, um, uh, people. Uh, I, I didn't realize quite how it worked until that happened, but uh, what happens when uh, the mayor or wh whatever elected official you happen to be working for loses a, an election and somebody new comes in is that they ask you to write letters of resignation. And so we all wrote our letters of resignation, which were then accepted, and uh, we were all out of a job. Uh, after that, I ended up uh, being introduced to Governor Martin O'Malley in Maryland. Uh, we hit it off and basically invented a job called the Chief Innovation Officer for the state. Uh, to my knowledge, it was the first time there had ever been a Chief Innovation Officer in any sort of jurisdiction in the states and maybe even globally. Um, and we had fun with it. Uh, one of the, the really interesting things about uh, uh, O'Malley is that he, over the course of 16 years, he, he 
ran Baltimore for eight years and then was the governor of Maryland for eight years, really learned how to run a large bureaucratic organization. And when he brought me in, uh, basically what he said was, look, I've got these 15 goals. And, and this was his thing. He said, look, you know, the state's a big state, but I'm going to focus on these 15 things. They're going to be very time-bound and measurable. And uh, we're going to be very public about how we uh, uh, achieve these goals. He's like, look, I want you to come in and I want you to help us accelerate our progress towards uh, reaching these goals by leveraging, you know, the idea of doing things in different ways. Use technology, use data, use process change, use culture change, use behavior change, all the things that you can think of. And so uh, I had a great time there and I was actually planning, um, this is kind of funny, so when I started that job, I, um, my plan was basically to work for him through the end of his term, which was the end of this year, and then go, or the beginning of this year, I mean, and then go back to the private sector. Um, I also promised myself that I would never, under any circumstances, go work for the federal government. Uh, because um, I'm pretty bad at bureaucracy and my experiences with the federal government from the DC and Maryland jobs had really been just a lot of bureaucracy and so uh, that all changed when um, really they came uh, calling for uh, this particular job and recruited me to, to be the CTO and I ended up taking it for a couple of reasons number one uh, because when you think about the stuff that's happening in healthcare uh, and human services right now, it is literally the most interesting time since probably 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were created. Um, you know, the, the universe is changing, this ecosystem is changing, and uh, to be sort of in the middle of it at that point in time is just incredibly fascinating. Uh, secondly, I've always had an interest in healthcare. Uh, my dad's a doc, his dad's a doc, my uncle's a doc. I was that close to being a doc probably at some point. Uh, and um, so it's always been sort of in my blood, I guess, in a certain sense. Uh, and um, it's just, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. The people that work here are just incredibly dedicated. They're, uh, um, they have all of the right motivations in mind. They're trying to help people. They're trying to help right. this universe. It's just been great. So, so that's the story in a nutshell. So very briefly, uh, give us a sense of the, the size of the Department of HHS. The size of the department? Sorry, you, you, yeah. you got choppy for a second. Okay. Um, so the department is, it's actually an interesting question. So the department itself is, I would say, roughly 90,000 employees. Um, if you look at, that's just full-time employees. If you look at contractors, uh, it's probably uh, maybe two to three times that. Um, uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, for example, is uh, 5,000 full-time employees, but 100,000 uh, contractors, uh, so it's a pretty fascinating structure. Um, HHS itself you can think of as almost like a holding company for 11 of what we call operating divisions, and these are things, some that you've heard of, the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, and then maybe a bunch that you might not have heard of, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, uh, the Administration for Community Living, uh, Administration for Healthcare Research and Quality, things like that. Um, so it's it's very interesting organizational structure. Um, NIH, for example, is a uh, you know a very sort of um, uh, I mean, they're the crown jewel of American healthcare and health research, right? So they kind of uh, are out there doing their thing, and and it's um, often an interesting challenge to kind of help all of these different divisions and different people work together. Uh, to do interesting things. It's it's really been quite fascinating. So can you, 
just give you a sense of our audience, we have markets, digital marketeers, information technology, chief technology. We also have startup founders, and, and it's a mix of you know Fortune 500 as well as startups and across different lines of business. Can you explain to our audience what what you do as the CTO, your your, your job, your your function as a CTO for for the department? Sure. So it's a good question, and, and I say that it's a good question because I think um, the title CTO is a little bit uh, vague and sort of misleading in, in many cases when you look across the, the universe. Uh, one CTO, especially in government, is not even remotely the same as another CTO. Uh, in some cases, um, in government in particular, we have CTOs who report to CIOs. Mm -hmm. uh, those roles tend to be more around um, looking at you know sort of the near-term future of technology and how that technology can be embedded into the enterprise to help it kind of move forward. Uh, in my case, it's a little different. I work directly for uh, the secretary uh, and the deputy secretary, and uh, my remit is a little bit broader. Basically, um, the the job is really to look at this generic thing we call innovation, which might be related to technology, uh, which generally speaking, more often is related to process change and behavior change and um, getting sort of a large organization and a culture to shift and helping people figure out how to take advantage of everything from new tools and new processes and new methodologies to uh, you know um, uh, kind of old stuff like figuring out how to actually talk together in a way that's productive as opposed to non-productive and so that's really what I focus on um, some of it is is related to technology specifically some of it's not um, what we've really tried to do here in uh, the three years or so that I've been around is to build a platform for other people to plug into, both inside the government and outside the government, uh, to help them experiment with ideas, to uh, take successful experiments and try to scale them across uh, both the internal and external ecosystems, and to really move the ball forward in kind of new and unexpected ways. Uh, one of the ways that I look at it is that, you know, as the uh, as the pace of change continues to increase in the modern world, uh, both technologically speaking and sort of otherwise, we as an institution need to be able to react faster. We need to be able to be, you know, sort of immediately reactive and, and hopefully proactive so that we kind of get ahead of some of the things that are actually happening. And a lot of what we think about is how can we help people prepare for that universe and how can we change the culture of HHS and the way things work around here so that people are in that more proactive mindset rather than a sort of reactive mindset that takes a while to, uh, to catch up. So is the focus of your work, Brian, primarily on process and culture and creating the conditions for change and for innovation as opposed to the technology itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the reasons for that is because, um, and, and you know, I'm a technologist by background and training. I'm a you know computer science graduate. Uh, haven't written code in a while. It's probably a good idea. You probably don't want me writing much code anymore, but. Um, you know, that's my thing, and, and I, uh, I'm a huge geek and, you know, love all this stuff. But one of the things that I've kind of come to realize over the years is that technology is very rarely, uh, if ever, a direct solution to a problem. It can be a catalyst, it can be an enabler, it can be an accelerant, but it is very, very unusual for a technology to come in and actually solve some problems. What tends to solve problems are people and culture 
and uh, you know the the ability for people to adjust to, to new ideas and new systems uh, and to push new ideas and so we um, really focus on trying to enable other people to see different possibilities and where tools can come in and technologies can come in to help enable those changes or accelerate those changes great you know we'll, we'll be the first ones jumping up and down saying hey have you tried this thing but um, there are plenty of times when new tools and new technologies actually have an opposite effect, right? You bring something in, it doesn't get adopted, nobody uses it, uh, and you're kind of back to square one. And so I think it's, you know, a lot of people sort of associate this idea of innovation with technology. Uh, we try to think of it, um, um, we, well, we've actually defined this word innovation in a bit of a different way. We, we define innovation as a direct result of the freedom to experiment. The idea being that if we can, uh, we can teach people the scientific method, right? We can teach people to experiment, to develop a hypothesis, to test that hypothesis, to um, uh, to kind of look at the results that come back and fold those results into future iterations. We can also provide people with freedom, right? And we can give them the air cover they need to actually run these tests. And we believe that if we can both provide uh, the freedom to run these tests, give the methodologies and uh, the um, specific ideas uh, and trainings around how to actually go about experimenting, uh, then this thing called innovation will result. And, and a nice little side effect of that, by the way, is that um, the word experimentation by itself uh, sort of encodes the idea of an unsuccessful test. And one of the things that government is really bad at, that it needs to get better at, is figuring out how to embrace failure, right? How to like, essentially say, you know what, we're going to try something and it might not work and that's okay. And we're going to learn from that, uh, from, from the things that didn't work and fold those back into another iteration of something that does work. You have said that your role at HHS is executing the department's innovation agenda. Does executing the agenda sounds like, is it more a cultural and process and people innovation and technologies last? Or can you can you explain how you are driving the innovation agenda? Yeah, so um, I guess the first thing I'll say, um, even though I just defined the word innovation, is that I kind of hate it. <laughs> um, and and I, I hate it because it's become this, this word that kind of means everything and at the same time means nothing, right? Um, and so we try to define it to give it a little bit of meaning. I mean, really what we're trying to do is build out this, um, this platform that, uh, to me, uh, has uh, really been focused on solving three big problems that we identified both in the department and in the ecosystem. Number one, we've got these 90,000 people uh, for the most, who, for the most part, are incredibly dedicated, uh, incredibly intelligent, focused on the mission, here for all the right reasons, you know, like really, I mean, just you know, subject matter experts in these incredibly complex areas. Um, but they find their hands tied by the bureaucracy and the red tape and some of the challenges that a large organization presents. And so the first problem we try to solve is how can we enable these people uh, to, to test out some of these ideas in sort of a fear-free way and really figure out how to make something go from an idea to a functional prototype that will provide some data to indicate whether it's successful or not. Uh, the second problem that we try to solve is really uh, the um, uh, the idea that we have these 90,000 people, they're all incredibly intelligent, and they've got all these great skills, but at the same time, we don't have all the skills on the inside 
that we need in order to uh, solve some of the most complex problems that we have. And so we've devised some initiatives to kind of bring people in from the outside world uh, on a time-limited basis to help us solve some of these problems that we don't have the internal skill sets to do. And then the third problem, and anybody who works in uh, a large uh, organization will probably recognize this, but maybe this actually propagates to organizations even of smaller sizes, which in, you know, in my experience it does, um, you get these silos of uh, sort of expertise or behavior or program functionality or what have you, and they very rarely talk to each other. But one of the things that we know from uh, looking at the history of sort of innovation and innovative thought is that we never, new developments never come from the guy who has that eureka idea, right? Um, the apple uh, doesn't tend to fall on Newton's head and you know, all of a sudden some great theory of gravity comes out, right? Um, the, the, all of these new ideas tend to come from groups of people working together, uh, each of whom have different backgrounds, different ideas, different cultural histories, uh, uh, etc. And so these silos that exist tend to prevent people from different backgrounds from working together. Um, that's sort of architectural in many cases in government. If you walk literally right outside my office into the hallway here, you'll walk into a windowless corridor uh, that's sort of cement-lined and dark, and uh, the only thing you're going to collide with is air, right? I mean, like, people are, like, stuffed into cubicles, and they never really interact with each other, and that's exactly the wrong kind of thing. So the third, um, the third issue that we try to solve is this issue of really getting people to work together in more effective and appropriate ways so that we can actually get new ideas out on the table and try them and see what happens. We have a question from Twitter, and okay. Arsalan Khan asks a, a really interesting one, and he notes that change requires people, and in the government there are many folks who are close to retirement or, or aim towards retirement, and how do you get that large group of people to change and evolve and adapt as you're describing? So the way that I look at it is actually fairly simple. Um, if you look at, uh, let's say you were to graph the propensity of any one individual to uh, want to actually change the way they do something, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of versus the, uh, the, the, the number of people that are out there, what you'll get is a kind of standard bell curve, right? Where on the left-hand side of that curve, you're going to have people who really have zero desire or incentive to do anything differently than they want to do. And on the far right-hand side of that curve, you'll have a uh, number of people who are jumping up and down and you know raising their hands and saying where have you been you know we've been looking for to do all this stuff what we tend to do is focus on the people on the right hand side of that curve I could spend my entire the rest of my life focusing on the people on the left hand side of the curve and nothing would ever change um, the people on the right hand side of the curve on the other hand are embracing it they're ready to go and so what we found is that if we can work with those people and make those people successful that success then propagates down that adoption curve and allows us to actually engage with people who you never would have thought would have been engaged in the past. Um, what's also interesting, though, is that, well, I, I suppose it's true that demographically, the right-hand side of that curve probably skews more towards the younger, uh, you know, the, the um, people that haven't really been around as long. There are plenty of people that occupy that space of the curve who've been around for 35 years and uh, are you know, still anxious and eager to do things in different ways. So you know, while um, 
sure. I mean, there are a percentage of people out there, especially in government, who've been around for a long time and who are uh, close to retirement um, and, and are not interested in changing. I actually think that there are plenty of people out there who are in that same scenario that really do want to do things in different ways, mainly because, you know, part of it, if you think about it, most people who are in government are here for the mission, and if you can provide them with an opportunity to really execute on that mission and to you know move the ball forward in some just massively tangible way, they're going to be all for it because that's why they're there. You know, even if maybe that's why they came in 30 years ago and they sort of forgot about it, you can reignite those fires, uh, and it's pretty powerful when you do. How do you do that? How do you, you know, if you want to see the change, be the change. But how do you? How do you? ignite the fire in someone's belly to say, I'm going to fight through the bureaucracy, I'm going to sit in the windowless cubes as long as I know that I'm walking towards the mission that I so strongly believe in. How, how do you do that as a leader? So what I try to do is, is so first of all, it's important to recognize that you know I'm not necessarily a subject matter expert in anything that we do at HHS, right? Okay. We have, you know, we, we have people that are I mean, you know, the craziest cancer researchers you can imagine, right? And people who, like, literally know everything about child welfare programs. And, I mean, just, you know, all kinds of crazy people. So the first thing I do is that I absolutely do not go in and tell people how to do things because that's, like, the wrong approach. That will not get you very far. What we try to do is offer assistance to help them achieve the goals that they're trying to achieve, right? Because even the most jaded, cynical, long-term government employee is not going to say, I don't want to do that, right? I don't want to go and help all these people that I'm here trying to help or implement this program that I'm trying to implement. And if you can give them an opportunity to uh, jump in and actually say, you know what, like if I try something, you know, and they've got my back so I don't need to worry about it if it goes wrong, you know, maybe maybe something good can come of this. And, and that's one of the ways to do it. Um, you know, one thing that we've seen um, in a number of different occasions is where you'll get some of these old um, uh, folks who've been around for a while uh, and they'll have younger people on their teams who are actually trying to push the envelope in interesting ways and so we'll, we'll sort of work with those younger folks and they'll all of a sudden be delivering on things that, that these guys who've been around for a while never thought were possible and all of a sudden you know they're like wait a minute this is kinda cool what else can we do and that's where we see just massive adoption and interesting things happen. So again, like, you know, a lot of people complain about the bureaucracy. A lot of people complain about, you know, folks who are blockers or who say no. We just sort of try to get them on the same team, right? And, and to the extent that we have to go around, we go around, you know. Sometimes we do have to use the authority of being in the secretary's office to actually get stuff done. We try to use that authority relatively, uh, in, a, in a relatively limited fashion. So how so so essentially then you've been describing how you overcome forces of inertia that tend to militate against innovation or change and it sounds like your approach really consists of two things number one is having the um, I'm, I'm going to call it management finesse to magnetize and and attract people onto your uh, set of goals by not specifying how they work, but rather supporting their objectives. And then number one, number two is to uh, accomplish that through demonstrating uh, quick wins. 
time. That's exactly right. Um, I'll give you a great example. One of um, one of the initiatives that we've uh, spun up in this thing, uh, so we, we've created this entity called the HHS Idea Lab, which is really a wrapper for uh, all of the um, hopeful solutions to those three problems that I described earlier. Uh, one of the solutions that's in that um, uh, in this entity um, is an initiative called the uh, the HHS Ignite Accelerator. So this is a uh, think of it like a Silicon Valley style accelerator. It's a three month program. Uh, teams from across the department apply to be in this. Uh, we've done three rounds of it. We've had three cohorts so far. Uh, we've probably gotten on the order of 220 or so applications, and we've accepted about 30 or 35 teams into uh, into the uh, accelerator. Uh, when they get in, they're given three months of time, uh, up to $5,000, and a significant amount of training uh, on things like human-centered design and design thinking, lean startup, business model canvas, uh, rapid iteration and, and prototyping techniques, etc. And then they spend those three months basically building out a prototype of whatever it is that their idea was coming in. Uh, the goal is to essentially build that prototype to an extent where they have generated uh, enough data to uh, essentially validate a pitch that they make at the end of that three months for additional time or resources or whatever they need to scale that across the, um, uh, to scale that across the, the department. And so it's been fascinating to see the kind of things that come out of this. Some are technology related, some are business process related, um, some have been architectural. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating uh, kind of thing. And uh, what we see is that the, um, uh, not only has the quality of the projects that have been proposed and executed on continued to increase throughout these three rounds, um, what's really interesting is that people are taking uh, the, the lessons that they've learned throughout this mentorship and bringing it back to their day jobs. And so they're actually approaching their day jobs in completely different ways. Um, a, a perfect example of this is if you look at Lean Startup, right, um, one of the key elements of that is getting out of your office, right, going to talk to your customers, trying to understand what your customers want, uh, and then rapidly building, uh, you know, low-res prototypes up through, you know, the higher-resolution prototypes as you learn more. Um, the word customer is very rarely used in government, right? And so when you say to somebody, Who are, who's your customer, they kind of look at you like, what? But then once you explain it, and once you kind of put it in that context, right, uh, all of a sudden, you know, like people light up and they, they go for it. And I mean, so, so one of the things that we've been doing in this last round of Ignite, this most recent round, which is about to end on, uh, uh, we're having our sort of, we have a Shark Tank day kind of thing at the end of it where they do five minute pitches and, get some Q&A and it's, it's fun and intense at the same time. Um, we, uh, for this last cohort, we've actually required a certain number of customer interviews before they really could progress to the next phase of their prototypes. And so it's been fascinating to watch how these prototypes have progressed and changed based on the conversations that they had with these customers they never would have talked to before. They would have just like, dove in and started building. And so it's been really fascinating to watch. That's, awesome. that's just one example. We had uh, on our previous shows uh, Steve Blank mm -hmm. and Alex Osterwalder. So it's really great to have you talk about business model canvas innovation and, and lean principles. And uh, they were two fascinating uh, guests. So let's We've say actually, I'm a CEO of a, or a founder of a startup. 
and I scored an appointment with, you know, CTO of a 90,000 person organization. What advice do you have for me, the founder CEO of a startup, before I walk in the office and pitch to you, other than knowing the importance of what a customer is? Yeah. So, um, so actually, a big part of my job um, is. So I talked a lot about the internal part of my job. A big part of the external piece of my job is actually working with um, startups and entrepreneurs, but also big companies that are doing innovative things that have the potential to fundamentally uh, reshape or disrupt the healthcare or human services ecosystems, right? So I kind of look at myself in my office as that entry point into HHS where if you're doing something crazy that uh, has like significant potential but it's difficult for you to get attention from anybody else, we're the place to come, right? Um, and it's been fascinating. So we actually, I spend a lot of time talking to uh, entrepreneurs and, uh, and, and startups. Um, so actually, that's a great question. I want to answer that in a couple of different ways. So first of all, if you're going to write me a cold email, don't send me... First of all, don't spell my name wrong. That's that's just bad. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, uh, uh, don't send me a generic template that talks about you know how much money I'm going to save if I switch my Cisco routers to something like I, you know figure out what it is that I'm interested in and what it is that I care about you know in terms of moving the ball forward and make a very uh, uh, interestingly crafted pitch that I can't ignore. Uh, also, don't make it too long. If you send me, you know, I get thousands of emails a day. If you send me an email that's, you know, more than a few paragraphs long, I'm probably not going to read it because I'm going to think it's a sales pitch. But try to capture my attention quickly. So that's the first thing. Uh, cold email. I, I, I sometimes I've been known to write back to people who have sent me really bad cold emails and tell them what they could have corrected just because it drives me crazy. Anyway, so that's the first thing. Um, when you get here and, and we're sitting down to talk. Um, get to the point quickly because uh, you know chances are we only have a half an hour and if we spend too much time kind of messing around we're not going to get to the main point. But then secondly, tell me about not the features and functionality of what you do, tell me about the impact. Tell me about just immediately off the bat what are, what's going to change if we you know, either work with you if it's something that HHS would, would end up buying or if it's something that we can help the market adopt. Like, why is the market going to adopt it over the other things that are out there? What's the what's the, the unique selling point? What's the, you know, what's the thing? What's the outcome? What are the goals? And uh, too many people, I think, miss that and they start talking about features and functionality. I care less about features and functionality and more about what change you are engendering within the ecosystems that we deal with on a regular basis. So you have just described uh, startup to enterprise marketing in a nutshell. And uh, so, so you say that you spend time with startups, uh, but clearly if you, you are, you're inundated and you must have additional filters just because somebody sends you an interesting pitch that is, and spells your name correctly and the pitch is short and yeah. they are describing the outcome rather than the features and the functions and they get right to the point. Still, you have to have additional filtering mechanisms because otherwise you would be completely inundated. So can yeah. you describe a little bit more what are the filtering mechanisms that will get somebody through the door? So first of all, if I give you all my secrets, then I'm going to get inundated. <laughs> I want you to be inundated with CXL. Just amongst us. There's no one watching. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> just between us. Okay. We're going to cover our ears. 
<laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So um, one of the most important things that I think um, I think people miss this relatively frequently is it's really important to try to figure out what the the hot button issues are at any one point in time. And one of the ways to think about that from the perspective of HHS is to look at you know the strategic plan that's published on the web. You know what are the different uh, entities of HHS trying to accomplish, and how can you help them accomplish those goals faster, right? So, um, uh, what's an example? So, so one of the things that we're really pushing on, um, the Secretary made a speech about a month and a half ago or two months ago, is this idea of reforming the healthcare delivery system. This is a massive topic, right? And there's lots of different things that go into it, but. Uh, one of the critical components that goes into that is this idea of data and information uh, being shared between networks and between systems, uh, between doctors and hospitals and all these other things uh, in a way that actually works and makes sense. And that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. So if you can actually pitch whatever it is that you're doing in those terms, right? What do I care about? What do I spend my days thinking about? And how is your thing going to help me take the stuff that I worry about and that I want to fix and accelerate that uh, even farther, that's what I want to know about. If somebody has, for example, um, so one, uh, here's an example. What we um, Interesting story. So uh, in the United States of America, we do not have a unique national patient identifier. Um, this is, uh, the story behind this is somewhat interesting when uh, there's this law called HIPAA which protects, essentially is designed to protect uh, the privacy of your uh, personal health information. Uh, when that law was passed, uh, it was actually passed with a mandate for HHS to develop a national patient identifier. However, quickly after that law was passed, in our funding bill, uh, Ron Paul inserted a line that said no dollars that are appropriated to HHS shall ever be used to develop a national patient identifier. So the law says that we have to do it, but then the appropriations bill, which tells us how we spend our money, basically says that we can't do it. Now this is actually a huge problem. Um, if you think about any massive system not being able to uniquely identify the participants in that system, you can understand like where a lot of the challenges come in. And so we, uh, because we're prohibited by law from actually working on the problem of developing one of these, you know, national patient identifier systems, one of the things that um, we've been thinking about is how can we help the ecosystem figure out how to match patients, match data in these disparate systems in better ways. And so we actually have a guy right now uh, in another one of our, our initiatives called, uh, we have this Innovator in Residence program where we partner with a nonprofit to bring in somebody for two years to work on a problem. We actually have somebody right now named Adam Culbertson um, who's actually going to be presenting at HIMS on his work to date. Uh, it's a HIMS partnership actually where we're working on this idea of trying to help the ecosystem figure out how to better match patient data. So it's a super fascinating project, right? I mention that because if your organization or your company uh, has a, uh, an algorithm that you've developed to actually match data, which by the way in this world happens all the time, we would love to know about that, right? And the next thing I'm going to do is put you in touch with Adam because he needs to know about it, right? So there's like that's just one simple example, but we talk about that on the website. Uh, you know, all of the stuff that we're doing is very public, so if you do just a tiny bit of research, you can actually figure out what we care about 
and kind of you know make your pitch in that way. So that would be like the main filter that I would suggest uh, that I use that I would suggest other people kind of pay attention to. You're always going to get an executive's attention if you make a pitch on something they care about. Sure, sure. Now Hims is one of the largest, if not the largest, healthcare technology conference in Chicago. It starts on Monday next week. I believe you're presenting at Hims on Monday at one o'clock uh, local time. Thank you. Uh, is it okay to talk about the the, the topic? What you're going to talk about uh, at Hims? And if not, we can go to another question. No, we can, I can talk about it. I don't want to give too much away because then nobody will come. It won't be that much fun. But uh, but basically, um, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a retrospective uh, of the last few years uh, at HHS. It's been a very interesting time, as you might imagine. And one of the things that one of the things that I really want to be able to do is give people who are outside of government but either need to interact with government or should interact with government on a more frequent basis a better understanding of how it actually works. Um, I think I think most people think of government as this sort of big monolithic entity that like does things to people, you know? And in reality, it's a big, completely heterogeneous uh, system made up of humans that do things, right? Humans who have their own interests, their own desires, their own biases, their own uh, incentives and everything else. and it's a much more complex system than I think most people really, I, I think they, they intellectually understand it, but I don't think they necessarily uh, internalize that understanding. And so I, I, I'm going to try to maybe give that perspective, if I can. Awesome. You know, we only have a, a, a short time left, but we have not spoken too much about data and analytics, and we, you, you kind of alluded to it. But maybe weave into this overall story the importance of data. Talk about open government, which I know is a topic that is of uh, near and dear to your heart. And and let's spend a little bit of time on, around that. Sure. So um, so so let's start with data. First of all, uh, we believe that um, we believe that data is literally the the most critical element to reshaping the healthcare and human services ecosystems out there. We can't do a lot of the work that we need to do if we don't have the data to support it. So um, just let's take healthcare as a simple example, or I should say a complex example, but basically healthcare in this country today is primarily fee-for-service. It's transactional. You get sick, you walk into your doctor's office, they do a bunch of stuff to you. That stuff gets billed to you on a line item basis. You pay some of it, your insurance company pays some of it, and that's the end of it. The problem is that that uh, essentially incentivizes the um, uh, the entire ecosystem to kind of do more things to you, right? Rather than actually keep you healthy and out of the hospital and out of the doctor's office. So a lot of the work that we're doing in uh, various parts of HHS is to try to change how we pay for healthcare. Instead of paying transactionally, we really want to pay for what we call pay for value. We want to pay to keep people healthy, to keep them out of the hospital as opposed to treating them when they're in the hospital. Um, in order to do that the right way, we need data. We need information. If we don't have that data and we don't have that information, there is no chance that we have that uh, to, to reshape that ecosystem at all. And so um, about five years ago, we kicked off this thing called the Health Data Initiative. Uh, what we realized basically was that we have all of this data at the department that we've never really exploited. Uh, we 
we basically, um, uh, you know, we, we kind of kept it locked up in silos. Uh, we might have published it in literally a physical book and shipped it off somewhere. But we never really thought about what the uses of that data might be and how that data might be uh, leveraged by other people in the ecosystem. And so about five years ago, we, um, we tested the theory by uh, get, gathering about 30 data sets that we thought might be interesting and giving them to 45 people who you know, had some skills with data and said, what can you do with these things? Come back in 30 days. And 30 days later, they came back with 24 different applications that they had written based on this data that had never existed before. Now, not all of them were great. Some of them you know, were whatever. But what it proved to us was that there was value here. And so over the last five years, we've really built this thing out called the Health Data Initiative, which is focused on looking at all the different categories of data that we have at HHS. Uh, statistical data, administrative data, uh, clinical data to a certain extent, uh, and trying to figure out how to um, responsibly get that data out into the ecosystem so that people can take advantage of it and build it into tools and applications and things that have a have some potential to actually change the the way things work. Um, the uh, uh, I should actually plug here. Uh, that basically one of the outcomes of this is a big conference that we do every year in DC. It's called the Health Data Palooza. Uh, this will be, I think, the sixth iteration of it. And it's, uh, the first iteration was really those 45 people in a room back on day one. Uh, but this iteration is now going to be, it's gone from those 45 people to about 2,500 people showing up in Washington, DC. And it's everybody from uh, you know, economists to academics to entrepreneurs to developers to uh, data scientists to VCs to government people, you name it, that are all there interested in this topic. Uh, so, you know, one of the coolest things I've seen uh, over the last few years are all of these companies, from startups to big companies, that are using this data that we put out there to actually do things in different ways. And they're just like example after example of, of how all of this stuff uh, happens. Um, it's just been incredibly fascinating to see, and it's and we're still literally scratching the tip of uh, the surface of the uh, the tip of the iceberg, I should say. And uh, it's um, there's a long way to go. One of the new projects that we've been working on uh, is something we're calling demand-driven open data. Uh, the idea is that you know we have these thousands of data sets, uh, many of which are not in machine-readable form, many of which are not API-enabled question is how do we know which ones we should be putting our priorities and efforts into making machine readable or making API enabled and so we're asking the ecosystem out there to um, uh, to help us prioritize where we put our efforts in and um, uh, a workflow and a process by which we're going to kind of communicate our progress along that front um, if you go to I think it's a very if the URL is a mouthful it's demand-driven-open-data github.io but if you go there it's all on github uh, you'll find everything you need to find um, I think we blogged about it on our website so if you go to hhs.gov slash idealab in the blog there you'll see it um, but I encourage everybody who's listening to kind of go check that out and if there's a data set that you particularly are a uh, big fan of or one that you think we need to work on let us know there given the fact we only have a few minutes and your experience in government Brian what advice would you give to people inside of government who are trying to drive positive change? What, what would be your one or two or three words of wisdom you would share with them? Um, so one of my favorite words uh, that um, uh, somebody said to me the other day, uh, or used in my presence the other day, was this: the word courage, right? Have courage. We, we, need, we need people that um, are not afraid to try new things. Uh, and 
don't don't you know worry too much about what the negative consequences of an action might be versus what the positive outcomes of something might be. Um, so that's one thing. Um, second thing is, uh, I would say, <laughs> leverage leverage the word why quite a bit. So it turns out that um, quite often you'll try to do something and somebody will tell you no. And what usually happens is that whoever uh, asks, asks that question takes that no as the final answer and just walks away, when in fact it turns out that that was actually not the right response. And if you just ask why a couple of times, then uh, all you, uh, you, what you'll quickly come to the conclusion of is that um, you know, the law that, that that person was supposedly quoting actually doesn't say the thing that they thought it said. It just happened to be the way that we've done it forever, right? And so embrace the question why. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's hugely valuable and maybe the best tool that you possibly have uh, in government. Um, and then I think the third thing I would say is recognize and assume that there is a solution to every problem. There's no such thing as an intractable problem, especially in government. Uh, and uh, just keep pushing and, and keep trying to find the people that you need to find to help you make your idea and your vision a reality because you can do that. You really can. Okay, you know, we're almost done, but now we come to what's really everybody's favorite part of CXO Talk, and that's the gadget lightning round. Okay. <laughs> Actually, we've never spoken about gadgets. I've never heard that before. <laughs> we've never had a gadget lightning round, but... Uh, Thanks for inventing a whole new uh, ending. Voila, you know, All right, I, let's do it. Okay, Apple Watch. <laughs> okay, what am I supposed to say? Whether I'm going to get one or not? Yeah, you going to buy an Apple Watch? <sighs> I don't know. Um, this is a much longer answer than than this yes or no. Mainly, mainly, mainly because um, so I'm a total gadget nerd, right? Uh, like that's just my thing. I'm also like an Apple guy, so my entire ecosystem is Apple. Uh, and I'm a quantified self guy, right? So like I love all the data and all that other stuff. So by when I tell you those things, you would think he's totally going to buy an Apple Watch. Oh yeah, you're going to buy the $10,000 Apple Watch. I am totally <laughs> not going to buy the $10,000 Apple Watch. That is off the table. Uh, first of all, my wife would absolutely slaughter me if I did so. <laughs> Secondly, I just feel weird wearing something like that on my wrist. I mean, I'm not a watch guy. That's the other problem, right? Okay, so you're the Apple <laughs> Sport Watch guy. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a watch guy, so who knows what I am. But anyway, the 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 thing that I hesitate is that um, so with a phone, I was okay buying the first generation stuff because I use a phone all the time, right? And I I want to play with the new toy and things like that. With the watch, everything the watch can do, I I have kind of in other gadgets or other functions, and I I've not necessarily been upset about them not being integrated, right? So uh, the short answer is I don't know. Um, the slightly longer answer is that um, my birthday is coming up, and if I know <laughs> members of my family, they'll probably end up at least suggesting that maybe they get me one. So there you go. All <laughs> right. Brian's family member, he's asking for a watch. Well, this I'm, is not really, really, but I'm not really. Not. That's the thing. Like. I just don't know. <laughs> As a lawyer friend of mine once said, the most interesting uh, phrase is the foregoing notwithstanding. That's that's right. <laughs> yeah, I know my uh, father watches the show all the time, so Dad, if you're watching, I wouldn't mind a watch. <laughs> and, and I'm totally on I'm totally on the fence. 
But you know, why are you? I on had the I have an iPhone. I have an iPhone six, and the other day I bought an iPhone six plus, the big one. And then I realized that I tend to drop things, and it was like almost a thousand dollars. And so I got this big, thick case. <laughs> it's like you're carrying a laptop now. Right. And so the question is, do I? And this is the second question in our lightning round: Do I keep the six big, thick phone, or do I go back to the nice, compact uh, iPhone six? So. Personally, I feel like the six plus is just too big. Like it's 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 just it's a massive piece of hardware that uh, is not it doesn't do it for me, right? Uh, the, I have a six and I like the six a lot. I think it, it took me a little while to get used to it. I also thought it was a little too big at first, but then I got used to it and I like it now. But the uh, yeah, see, see, I think that's a good size for a phone. I, I think the six plus is just way too big. Okay. Well, here's a rule of thumb: if you're talking and someone can't see your head. <laughs> <laughs> You've gone over the edge. But I, I, I would agree with that. Unless you're like, unless you're like six eight, and you're sitting down, so I can't really tell. But if you're like six eight, maybe it's a. <laughs> That's true. If you're a starter for the Celtics or an NBA team, I suppose the plus right. would work. We're okay. Cool. Well, I like this. I like Vala's rule. If if you can't see your head when you're on the phone, the phone is too big. That's right. There we go. <laughs> and and with that, Vala and Brian, I think our time has come to a close. That was a fast 50 minutes. Thank you, Brian. Uh, tremendous insight. Look forward to seeing you at HIMSS. I'll be uh, at your talk and uh, tweeting away your controversial speech. <laughs> Excellent. Well, come say hi afterwards. I'd love to meet you in person. For sure. For sure. All right, guys. Yeah. Well, thanks for the time. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. You have been watching Brian Civic, who is the Chief Technology Officer for the Department of Health and Human Services, which employs 90,000 full-time people. I am Michael Krigsman, and my glorious and fabulous co-host is Vala Afshar, and I hope you'll come back next time. Brian, thank you for joining us. Vala, may the force be with you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.